My name is Kent. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, yesterday afternoon, I was the one red dot in section 108 at Kinnick Stadium. And I was trying to convert those around me, but it did not work, just so you know. We've been thinking a lot about the places we go in our everyday life and how God uses us in those everyday places. And we've been hearing some really great stories of people who have kind of taken up that call and have felt nudged by God to go into various places in their life and start to pay better attention to what's going on. We've been wanting you to hear some of these stories. So I'm going to invite Jennifer to come on up here. One of the hazards of working in the office is that you get recruited to fill in when we don't have someone else. So... But Jennifer has a really great story about how she felt like God was leading her into a place to bring about transformation. So go ahead. One place I like to go every Saturday morning is on a long run. Up until this past July, I've always ran my long Saturday morning run by myself. When we started to plan this fall kickoff for Transforming the Corridor series, I started searching for running connections I could make and discovered and joined the Corridor Running Group. This group actually meets every Saturday morning at a different location, and people run together. Back in July, I started meeting this group Saturday mornings. It was quite an adjustment. Instead of listening to my music while I ran, we talked the whole time while running about a great variety of subjects, and encourage each other along the way. Last Sunday, I ran the New Bow Half Marathon race, and it did not go so well for me. I was approaching the last mile, very discouraged. At this point, I knew I would be getting my worst half marathon time ever. As I trudged along, one of the leaders of the corridor running group and his dog, Blaze, came up beside me, and we started chatting and ran together to the end. I was even encouraged enough to sprint the very last portion to the finish line. I am looking forward to further ways that God will use me and use this connection. Each time as I drive to the location of the Saturday morning run, I pray that God will use me for his greater purpose. So one more example of someone who's just paying attention to the things they're already doing and the ways they're already interacting with people or not interacting with people and just um, listening to God's nudge. So we're going to invite you to continue to think about that and figure out the specific places where God's calling you. We started with five about a month ago, and now a lot of us are narrowing it down to just one or two places where we feel like God has really got us going. And to help you kind of commit to that, uh, we've got a butcher block paper out here on the wall And you can start writing your prayer requests for these specific places. And then on the other side, there's a place to write bright spots. So if you see God has done something and you see there's a connection that's been made, share that with us. We'd love to hear that too. So take take an opportunity to go do that today if you you think about it. So we are starting kind of a a little variation on this series, Transform the Corridor, by looking at the vocabulary that is important for us in getting this transformation done. So we're going to start with a little vocabulary test. Is that what you do first? No test. Forget that. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at our lesson for this morning. Ephesians chapter 2. So we're in the New Testament. 
about two-thirds of the way back through the New Testament, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, if you're in that area. Ephesians chapter 2. With a topic as big and as important as gospel, it's hard to narrow it to a single passage, but this one is one of my favorites as far as giving a real clear gospel picture. Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verse 1. As for you, you were dead in transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is God's word, and it's true, and you can rely on it. So if I were going to give you a word of encouragement or write you a letter of encouragement, would I start this way? Doesn't strike me as words that are inherently encouraging. And this is exactly how Paul starts this little section of the scripture to the church in Ephesus. He says, you were dead. And he is trying to encourage them. And this is kind of a shocking thing to hear in that regard. Because you wonder if Paul is just like trying to grab attention. Is he just trying to grandstand? Is he just trying to like make some big case? He wants you to pay attention to him. What is Paul doing? Is he trying to get our attention? Or is he writing to some specialized category of people who happen to fall into the category of near-death experiences? People who maybe their heart actually stopped on the operating table or they were brought to the ER dead and they literally were dead. I don't think he's writing to that specific audience. He's writing to a much more broad category of people. All of us and his words strike me as a little bit odd under normal circumstances. You were dead. Would you use that greeting on a day-to-day basis? Hey, Jack, you were dead. Turn to your neighbor right now and greet them by saying, you were dead. Say it with feeling. Sounds a little bit crazy, doesn't it? It does sound a little bit crazy to me. If our neighbor doesn't understand what we're saying, it is even more nutty. And I think this is the importance of vocabulary. If we don't understand the words we're using, they sound goofy. 
A few weeks ago, we started exploring how transformation is all about Jesus, which is a great thing because Jeremy reminded us that Jesus is everywhere we go, and the power of Jesus is available to us no matter what we're doing. And then we started to talk about how that power of Jesus and love of Jesus and goodness of Jesus starts to ripple out from us as we share it with our neighbors, like ripples in the pond. And these ripples can have dramatic effect as the love and grace and goodness of God is revealed to the world. And this is what brings transformation. Transformation starts with Jesus, and then it comes through us, and then it ripples out into the world. This is part of what's wired into us as followers of Jesus. It's part of our identity as uh, family, as servants, as missionaries. God transforms the world through us. So as we started to think about how this is a calling that we're receiving, one thing that we discerned in several different discussions that I had with people was that, well, we need to be really clear about what do we mean by this kind of transformation. It's, It's different than any other kind of transformation. We have a particular understanding of what kind of things we think should be changed and how God wants to change them. And if people don't understand our vocabulary, they're going to think we're nutty. If we don't understand what we're saying, we're going to sound nutty to each other. As followers of Jesus, we want to see a certain kind of transformation, the kind of transformation that happens that is good for the entire community, that makes the whole neighborhood a better place. We're looking for the kind of transformation that we pray God can bring and only God can bring. It's not the kind of transformation that comes in any other way. And it starts with us and goes into our families and then to our neighborhoods and to our workplaces and to our schools until eventually the whole community is, is touched. This kind of transformation has a certain kind of vocabulary and grammar to it that we want to try to uncover. And we're actually going to be working on this now for the next several months Um, maybe the rest of the year, so that we understand exactly what it is we think God is calling us to do when we're transforming the corridor. So the first word, I think, is one of the most important words. It's gospel. To get the whole gospel, we need to go back to the beginning, which is Genesis. So we go back to where the story starts. And we see that in Genesis 1, God created And everything that God created, it was good. We see this litany, actually. It's very poetic, where God creates on this day, and he looks at it, and he says, that's good. And he creates the next day, and he looks at it, and he says, that's good. And he creates the next day, and he looks at what he's done, and he says, that's good. This is repeated five different times. And then on the last day is the best part of creation. He creates Adam and Eve. And the litany changes just a little bit. He doesn't say just, that's good. He looks at Adam and Eve, and he goes, oh, that is very good. He has created something in his own image. This is a beautiful picture of how the world starts. The gospel actually starts with creation. And then we get this terrible news in Genesis 3, verse 6. The woman saw the fruit of the tree that was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and it was also desirable for gaining wisdom. This is the tree, by the way, the one tree in the beautiful creation, in the perfect creation, that God had said, don't eat from that tree. Whatever you do, do anything you want to, just don't eat from that tree. Now, the woman saw the fruit, and it was good and pleasing and desirable, and so she took some of it, and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. So we're in the middle of paradise, and Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit, and they commit an act of treason cosmic treason. 
disobedience. It, re- it represents a fundamental lack of trust in God. God said, don't do this one thing, and that's the one thing they did. Don't eat from that tree, or very bad things will happen to you and to the whole world. And they did. What Adam and Eve did, I think, is they second-guessed God. They thought, you know, I think I know better than God. I know he said this. I know he's God. But I think I know better. The fruit looks good. It looks pleasing to the eye and good for discerning wisdom. Why wouldn't I eat it? When they second-guess God, this act of disobedience destroys paradise. It ruins everything that was perfect. It actually wrecks the entire world. That's what happens from the eating of this forbidden fruit. It's not just a personal sin that destroys Adam and Eve. It's a cosmic sin that destroys all of perfection. Since that day, we are told in Scripture that the whole world is groaning, that it's in this state of longing to go back to perfection, to go back to paradise, to be restored the way it was created. That's what the world wants more than anything. Which makes me wonder if you have ever groaned in grief or in pain or in disappointment or in brokenness, groaned because the world was not the way it was supposed to be? Because your life was not the way it was supposed to be? I know that I have. And it's because of this disobedience. It's because of second-guessing God, not trusting his word. The personal, the personal consequence of this disobedience is what Paul was talking about in Ephesians 2. Death. Because of this second-guessing, you were dead. And so was I. We didn't just look dead or feel dead, and we were not mostly dead. We were dead. And here's a true fact. Dead people can't do anything. Dead people are helpless. You can fact check that one. Which raises a a question... Do we really believe that we were dead and helpless? And here's where I have to stand before you and confess that sometimes I second-guess God. I still have trouble believing him, taking him at his word in every circumstance. I still have difficulty trusting him in everything. Do I trust him when he says, you were dead, or do I start to second-guess? Do I squirm a little bit and go, well, you know what? I've known people who were more dead than me. I've known people who were actually really good corpses. I can see why God would choose to call them dead. I'm not sure why he would call me dead. I'm a pretty good guy. I was raised in a pretty good family. I've lived a pretty good life. I can think of people who have done a lot worse things than I have. Are you sure I was the one who was dead? Really? 
Well, when I have this kind of attitude, I'm exactly like Adam and Eve. I'm second-guessing God, too. I'm thinking, is God really true to his word? And you know what God says to me when, he has an, when I kind of have this attitude? You know what God says? Kent, you are dead. And dead is dead. And dead people can't do anything. Dead people are helpless. Dead people need someone to rescue them, to save them. Dead people need forgiveness. Dead people need to be made new. Dead people need the power of God to come into their lives to work. Renewal. To make them alive again. Remember these words? Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ even when we were dead. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realm in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show his incomparable riches, his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, so no one can boast, not by works. It's by grace we are saved. Not by doing good things, not by being good people, not by fixing the brokenness, not by raising ourselves from our deadness. It's by grace, through faith, that God makes us alive again. This is the gospel. This is good news. Does that sound like good news to you? That's good news. I feel like I should have balloons up here right now. (laughs) But that is not the whole good news. Now, this is where I've really been challenged lately to think more broadly about God's plan to fix everything that is broken in this world. I grew up in a situation where personal salvation was kind of the, the, the end of the story, that what was important was that everyone came to a place where they would personally confess their sin in Christ, and after they confessed their sin in Christ, they would confess their need for Jesus and pray for him to come and forgive them for all their sins, and then they would have forgiveness of sins and salvation and eternal life. That was the whole goal. That was the whole gospel. But when I hear this gospel now, I think, that's good news. But that's not the whole good news. There's even more than that. This is even more important. In fact, I've started to think that if we stop the gospel at personal salvation what we actually end up doing is we end up diminishing the gospel. The gospel becomes small and smaller and smaller. It just becomes as small as my own personal world and my own personal need for salvation, which is important, but that's not the whole story. The whole story is that God wants to restore the whole world back to perfection. That the picture that we have of this perfect place in the garden, this paradise that Adam and Eve lived in, This is the picture that God has for the end of the world and that he is working through Jesus to bring the whole world back to perfection. That's the whole gospel. God wants to fix everything that is broken. God wants a perfect world and that's what God is working toward. When we're talking about gospel transformation, it includes both personal repentance and faith that leads to eternal life And it includes transforming the entire world back to perfection. 
when I think back to how I looked at it when I was growing up, I, I'm struck with kind of how ridiculous it is, even how small it is, for two reasons. First of all, it's ridiculous because the whole world is ruined and needs to be fixed. If we make it just about us, we overlook the mess that we all live in, that we all encounter day by day. We overlook the mess that everyone else lives in, that the whole world faces day by day. And it's ridiculous because the gospel is so much bigger than just me and my restoration. It has to do with this whole power of God. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available not just to save me, but to save the whole world. So I've got a picture of, I think, what it looks like to have a more complete gospel story And it involves all four of these movements that we've talked about. It talks about starting with a picture of what God wants. He created what he wanted. It was beautiful and it was perfect. It was paradise. Everything was right. And then it includes this fall, this lack of trust, the second guessing of God, disobedience, whatever you want to call it, sin. Sin from Adam and Eve right up through us when we still fail to trust God and still fail to take God at his word, still fail to believe him fully. And then it goes to Christ and the cross and this work that he was willing to do, freely laying down his life for us, living a perfect life, doing everything that God expected from him, and then dying in our place, in the place of everyone who's ever sinned, dying to take the wrath of God so that we might have life. And then it moves to new creation. That from that moment on, from the moment of the cross forward, God has begun a work of transforming the whole world. He's begun to fix everything that is broken until one day the whole world will be restored just as it was in the beginning. For me, this seems to be the, the, the full gospel story, the whole gospel. I, like to call it the big gospel story. If we focus on the, just the fall and redemption, which usually becomes the personal salvation part, it becomes the little gospel. But we want to look at the whole big gospel. God's design is to bring his kingdom fully, and he has started to do that. He started the day Christ went to the cross. This is our hope for the gospel. And he uses us to accomplish this. Listen again to these words. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Transformation is about receiving this gift from God and then engaging in the world in the way that he has called us to engage. Another way for me to say this, I've picked some of this up from uh, Jeff Vandersleet and the, the Gospel Saturate movement. Some of us have been studying some of his material. He says it this way. He says, it's a discovery. The Gospel is a discovery that Jesus is better. That Jesus is better than everything. That we learn to live our everyday life by recognizing that Jesus is better than everything. That's the Gospel. 
The Bible's filled with this truth, too. We could go anywhere. I wanted to stay in the book of Ephesians, so I just went forward to Ephesians 4.13. This is kind of a picture of how God does this. God brings transformation when we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So transformation has something to do with entering into the fullness of what Jesus is like, of understanding that Jesus is really better than everything, anything, all things. New creation equals the whole measure of the fullness of Jesus being revealed to our world. This is a big idea. I'm still trying to get my mind around it. I came across a great passage in Colossians 2, and I really liked the message version of this translation. It shows how Jesus is better, how, he, how we enter into this fullness. It's, um, Eugene Peterson said it this way, everything of God gets expressed in Jesus. That's a nice idea, isn't it? Everything, if you want to know the fullness of God, then know Jesus. Everything of God gets expressed in Jesus. And you don't need a telescope or a microscope or a horoscope to realize the fullness of Christ or the emptiness of the universe without him. When you come to Jesus, the fullness comes together for you. His power extends over everything. Entering into his fullness is not something you figure out or achieve. It's not a matter of being circumcised or keeping a list of laws. No, you're already in your insiders when you know Jesus. Through Jesus, we have already gotten everything we need. He has destroyed the power of sin. Isn't that a beautiful story? That's the gospel. That's the gospel story. Jesus has destroyed the power of sin, and he is better than everything else that we could ever experience. Jesus is better than addiction and better than video games and politics and alcohol. Jesus is better than wealth and food and sex and success. Jesus is better than children and marriage. Jesus is better than everything. When we start to grasp the full implications of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished, we say Jesus is better than everything, and that's the gospel. And the hope of the world is a community like ours that is so saturated with Jesus that we can't help but share it with everybody that we see and all the places we go in the everyday stuff of life. That's the vision that we have of transformation. Now, one more question. Do we trust God when he says Jesus is better? Do we really trust him? And again, I probably need to come clean and make some confessions to you. I can say, yeah, Jesus is better. Well, you know what? We usually say, yeah, Jesus is better than death, better than being dead. We all agree to that, right? I can tell you, yeah, Jesus is better than pleasure. But truthfully, sometimes I enjoy Sports Center more than time with Jesus. Jesus is better than order. I'm, I'm a guy who likes to have things lined up and ordered. I can say Jesus is better than order, but when things get out of order, I get really anxious and nervous. I can say Jesus is better than vacation. Just came back from Colorado, but truthfully, I have to admit to you that before I went on vacation, I daydreamed about hiking in the mountains. I don't 
remember ever daydreaming about time with Jesus. I can tell you that Jesus is better than everything, that my security comes from this. My security comes from the fact that Jesus is better. But you know what? I feel more secure when I have a nice balance in my bank account. Do we trust God when he says that Jesus is better than everything? Yeah, but... We still try to replace him sometimes with stuff, good stuff and bad stuff in the world. So I have a new favorite movie as of Friday night. The musical The Greatest Showman. Have you seen this movie yet? Okay. If you haven't, I recommend it. It's about P.T. Barnum, and it has Hugh Jackman singing and dancing and elephants. So you know this is going to be a great movie. It's really fun, and it's got a, it's wonderful storytelling, but it's also very thought-provoking. So one of the scenes that got under my skin shows... Rebecca Ferguson, who's playing this world-renowned singer, Jenny Lind, and she's singing the song, Never Enough. And as she's singing this song, she's wrestling with one of the fundamental questions that comes out of this movie, which is, am I worthy? What makes me worthy? Every character in this movie is wrestling with this question. I wrestle with this question. Am I worthy? And here's some of the lyrics that she's saying. All the shine of a thousand spotlights will never be enough. All the fame that she was a very famous person. It was not enough to make her feel worthy. And then she says this line, sings this line. These hands could hold the world but it would never be enough. You could have everything in the whole world. And we spend our lives trying to do that, trying to hold what's in the world, because you know what? Each one of us has this hole, this spot inside of us that we long for it to be filled. And we go seeking all kinds of things to try to fill it. And you know what? No matter what you put in there, from this world, never enough. Never enough. Because nothing makes you worthy in this world. Jesus made you worthy. And he made me worthy. And by making us worthy, Jesus begins the transformation that starts moving the whole world toward perfection. And that's the gospel. God, we come before you today and we want to give you thanks because you are a good God and we thank you for your love, for the way that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who's even now hovering over this place to help us understand more fully the the good news of the gospel that you've shared with us. And so I ask that you'll begin the good work that you've started and we look forward, God, to the day when you're going to bring that to completion. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. So we've got just a couple of next steps I wanted to to reinforce. One would be this. If you do not know Jesus Christ as better, if you've never 
confessed your sin, you've never embraced Jesus as your Savior, you could do that right now. You say, God, I have not trusted you. I have sinned, disobeyed you, I've second-guessed you. And I'm sorry. And I trust that Christ's work on the cross was enough for me, and I embrace that, I accept it. And you become a child of God. If you've never done that, you could do it right now. You could do it before you leave. I invite you to talk to someone about doing that. And then also, we want to continue to encourage all of us to take this gospel into the places where we go. So if you have not yet identified the the key places where you go do life every day, school, work, neighborhood, places of business, wherever you go, keep asking God to show you what is the specific place where he wants you to go and start to name the specific people that are there. That's kind of the next step. One of the things that's also very exciting for me in helping us understand the the power of the gospel is that it transcends cultures. And I'm really grateful when we have individuals who have taken up the call to say, I'm going to go to an entirely new part of the world, an entirely new culture to share the gospel with people who need to hear it. And we have a couple special guests here today who have done just that. And we'd like to hear a little bit of their uh, summary. And so I'd like to invite Gary and Denise.